we are going to look at a story in Acts 16 that um, I believe, um, if, we, if we read it closely and deeply, has the power to help us think through the, the most central, motivating thing in our life, all right? And so, <clears throat> this is an important story, and I, I'm excited to be able to share this with you. Uh, to set it up, I want to tell you about a, a fellow that, um, by the name of Richard, and he is... He was a servant of God that I deeply admired because of his character and his passion and his service for God. And this is just a simple little everyday episode from his life that um, I think ties in with what we're going to look at in Acts 16 today. Um, He, uh, living here in Boise, wanted to put a fence in his yard between his yard and his neighbor's yard. And so he had his post hole digger out and he uh, is getting ready to dig the post holes for his fence. Um, and just as he starts digging the holes, his neighbor actually comes out and says, what are you doing? He's like, going to put a fence in, so I'm just digging the post holes. Well, you can't dig it there. That's on my property. Now, Richard knew it wasn't on his property because he'd actually done all his due diligence, and he actually checked with city records. He knew right where the property line was. He knew he was right. He knew he was in the right. But instead of arguing and defending his rights, what did he do? Richard looked at him and said, okay, no worries. Where should I dig it? And handed his neighbor the post hole digger. You tell me where the property line is, and I'll dig it there. Now, why would he do that? What drove him to say, you know what? Even though I'm right, it doesn't matter. You tell me where the property line is. And the thing that drove him to do that, knowing him and knowing the end of that story, the thing that drove him to do that is the same thing that drives the Apostle Paul in Acts 16. So I want to look at Acts 16, and I want us to think through, what is it that Paul is doing? Because Paul makes some crazy choices in Acts 16. Uh, He makes some choices that most of us would never make, and they're driven by a specific reason. So we need to look closely at this text because if we, if we understand what's going on in Paul's mind and in Paul's heart in Acts 16, it has the power to really reshape our whole life as a group of disciples of Jesus. And the reality is, as those who want to follow Jesus, um, this story has the power to reshape maybe how we raise our kids. This story has the power to to get us to pause and think about how do I do my job and why do I do my job that way? This story has the power to get us to think about, like, where should I go to college? Why should I make that choice? This story has the power to even get us to think about, like, how do I go to college and how do I do school? Like, how do I act and interact? How How do I interact with my neighbors over a post hole digger and a fence line. This story has the power to get us to rethink all of that, all right? Um, And the reality is, as followers of Jesus, sometimes, probably most of the time, we need concrete examples of discipleship. We can hear nice ideals of do this, right? Follow Jesus, do that. But until we see it in living color, It's sometimes hard to figure it out. True? That's why the Apostle Paul says in his writings things like this. Like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
In fact, he says to the Philippians, and this story is going to take place in Philippi, he says to the Philippians several times in his letter to them, he says, the things you've seen and heard from me, put them into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's offering himself to you and to me as a concrete pattern of discipleship. And this is one of the places where we see, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus in a world like ours that chases fame, that, that chases likes on our social media posts and the number of followers on our social media channels? What does it look like to follow Jesus in a world that, that glorifies celebrityism? This story helps us see, all right? So Acts chapter 16. Let's pick up, and we're going to pick up uh, early on in Acts 16, and we're going to set up the story, all right? Acts chapter 16, picking up in verse 6, it says this. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And everyone looked at that and said, oh, I know exactly where in the world we're at, <laughs> right? Uh, one of the most helpful things when reading the book of Acts is to actually get a map in front of you, because there's a lot of places that, like, I don't know where in the world that is. So let's get a map in front of us so we can at least figure out where Paul is at, all right? Um, and so uh, this map, this tells us where in the world we're at. That's actually modern-day Turkey, and you can see the red line is kind of tracking Paul's movements through Acts 15 and 16, all right? And so you can see Bithynia, you can see Mysia, you can see some of these places that are mentioned in the passage we just read. And as Paul is traveling, he, he wants to go up to Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus somehow doesn't permit him. No, not there. Uh, he's like, okay, we'll go into Mysia and Asia. No, no, not there either. And so he ends up you can see it on the map towards the top, Troas. It's a city up on the northwestern corner of modern-day Turkey. And he ends up in Troas, scratching his head like, Jesus, I have no clue what you want me to do. Like, not here, not here, so here I am. What do you want? Here's what happens while Paul's in Troas. While Paul's in Troas, in the night, Luke tells us, he gets a vision of a man from Macedonia. Macedonia is just across the sea from Troas. So he gets a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. Come over here and help us. And so, wakes up in the morning, he tells his traveling companions, I think the Lord wants us to go across the water into Macedonia. And so they sail across the water and they head to Macedonia. So picking up in verse 11, it says this. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, a little island in the middle, and they... They spent the night there, and then the following day to Neapolis, the harbor town, landed there, and from there, they walked up the road to Philippi. Notice how he describes Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we remained in this city for some days. And so they sail across the water over to Macedonia. Uh, they, uh, they travel inland just a few miles to the city of Philippi, and they spend some days there. That's Luke, Luke's way, Luke, the author of Acts, telling us that they settled down for a little bit, did some ministry in Philippi. And he describes Philippi as a leading city 
and a Roman colony. Now, just to help us maybe at least picture Philippi, I brought some pictures. Um, so we got some images. This is the ruins of downtown Philippi with the hill in the background and all that. So this is, this is where most of the action in our story is going to take place, is in downtown Philippi. Uh, up against the hill, just off the screen, if we go to the next picture, uh, was a Roman theater. And so, you know, it's a big city, an important city. It's got this nice theater. And then uh, we can get an aerial shot in the next picture of, here, here is the, the forum. This is the marketplace. Our story is going to take place right there. Um, so it's always nice when you can read the Bible and you can at least kind of see the general place, even though it's in ruins, that's where our story is going to take place. Most of the action is going to happen in that very marketplace. Um, and notice that Paul describes, or Luke describes, uh, Philippi as a Roman colony. Now, the reason that's important is uh, as a Roman colony... Philippi had certain privileges and certain statuses that a lot of cities didn't have. Um, and the reason Philippi is a Roman colony is because the last major battle of the Roman Civil War was fought on the plains outside of the city of Philippi. And when uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, Octavian, uh, when he won the day, he actually settled some of his troops there and deemed it a Roman colony. All right? And so it's a Roman colony. But here's what's fascinating is... Paul has already visited cities that are Roman colonies in the book of Acts. And Luke never mentioned that they are Roman colonies. After this story, Paul's going to mention more important cities, bigger cities that are Roman colonies. And Luke never mentions that they're Roman colonies. But in Acts 16, he wants us to know it's a Roman colony. Why? Why? Why this story? Why this city? Does he point out that little little detail. Well, let's keep reading, and let's see what happens, all right? So Luke's going to give us some snapshots uh, of what happens in the city of Paul's ministry, right? They settle down for some days there. They go about some ministry. So Luke's going to give us just a few snapshots that, that help set up what happens in the story and help us understand the point Luke is trying to make. So the first little snapshot is this. Paul's doing ministry there. He uh, comes to the Sabbath, Saturday, the Jewish day of worship. And Luke tells us that he goes outside of the city to a riverside where he assumes there'll be a place of prayer. This is the river, if we put it up on the screen, this is the river outside of Philippi where that would have happened. So Paul travels outside of the city of Philippi to this river for uh, uh, the Sabbath gathering uh, at a place of prayer. Now, what does that tell us? The fact that Paul had to travel outside of Philippi to a riverside where a, a group of women had gathered on the Sabbath where there was a place of prayer. What does that tell us about Philippi? It tells us there's no synagogue. It tells us that there's not much of a Jewish presence. You only had to have a handful of Jewish men in a city to at least be able to build a synagogue. There's no synagogue. And Luke actually notes where Paul assumes he's going to find some women gathered at the river for a place of prayer. In other words, there's a very, very, very small Jewish presence in the city of Philippi. That's important for what's going to happen in this story. 
all right? And so Paul travels outside of the city to the riverside. There's a place of prayer. There's some women gathered. Paul shares the gospel. Luke tells us that the Lord opened a particular lady's heart. Her name was Lydia so that she could hear and heed the message of the gospel. She responds in faith to the gospel, and she's immediately baptized right in the river, right there. Um, And then she uh, invites Paul and his ministry team to come and stay at her house while he's in town. So Paul and his team goes and stays at Lydia's house there in Philippi, and that's going to be sort of his base of operations. Um, And then over the next handful of days, handful of weeks, Paul continues to preach and teach in the city of Philippi. And Luke tells us that as he's walking through that marketplace, that downtown area that we looked at in the picture, right? As he's walking through there, um, on his way to the place of prayer one day, there is a slave girl whose owners are using her to make money because she has a spirit within her that enables her to be a fortune teller. So they've got their little booth, and she's telling the fortune, and they're making money off the slave girl. Well, as Paul's walking through the marketplace, she, uh, she keeps following after Paul, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, telling you the way of salvation. And she does it the next day, and she does it the next day. These men are servants of the Most High God, telling you the way of salvation. Over and over and over again. Verse 17 Uh, It says, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And that happened over and over and over again. Finally, Paul had enough. After a handful of days of her doing that, he got frustrated with the whole thing, and he's like, enough, and he cast the demon out of her. Um, In fact, Luke actually says, Paul was annoyed. Why would Paul be annoyed? Well, one, he'd be annoyed because who wants a demon as your press agent, Right? And, and two, I'm, I'm sure he's annoyed because he has the spirit of Christ and the spirit of compassion, and these people are using this woman, this girl, who is possessed by a demon to make money, right? And so he's like, okay, this is just ridiculous, and he casts the demon out. Um, well, here's what happens in the wake of that. Look at, look at verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, when they saw, oh, man, we can no longer make money off this girl. When they saw that, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. That picture, downtown marketplace, right? They dragged them right into the marketplace before the city rulers. Uh, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, that's the city rulers, they brought them before the magistrates, and this is what they said. Listen closely to the charges that they, they throw against Paul and Silas. These men are Jews. Um, And they are disturbing our city. They are advocating customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to practice because we are Romans. Notice how the charges pit Jewishness against Romanness. Remember, Philippi is a Roman colony. Remember, there's a very small presence of Jews in the city. And so here comes Paul preaching a Jewish Messiah, meeting with uh, the handful of Jewish women in the city, and from the vantage point of uh, the city folk, these men are Jews. They're preaching a version of Judaism that's not customary for us. It goes against us. They believe in one God. We believe in many gods. Uh, they believe that this guy named Jesus is Lord. They don't think the emperor is Lord. It's a Roman colony, and they're very loyal to the emperor. 
And so they're advocating teachings and customs and ideas that go against our culture and our way of life. Um, And so they set Paul and Silas before the city leaders with these charges. And what happens next? Well, verse 22, the crowd joined in. So there's a, you're in the downtown area, right? And so there's a lot of people around. The crowd joined in and attacked them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, they shouldn't be doing that. And so the magistrates tore the garments off Paul and Silas and gave orders to beat them with rods, um, lead rods, about a half an inch in diameter. That's what they use for these kinds of beatings. Can you imagine that to be beaten with a half an inch diameter lead rod? Um, And so they ordered them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows, not just one or two, many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them securely. And having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And so their backs are beaten, bruised and bloody with lead rods. And then they're put into the inner prison, the, the cell in the middle, no lights, total dark, right? Uh, and their hands and their feet are put into iron stocks. Now here's what's fascinating about that. Is Paul could have avoided that. Paul, Paul didn't have to get beaten with rods. He didn't have to get put into stocks. Why not? Because he's a Roman citizen. Paul is a Jew who happens to also have Roman citizenship. And all he would have had to say in front of the city magistrates is, hold on, hold on, hold on, I'm a citizen. And instantly, hands off, and we're at least going to have a trial, bare minimum, or we might just let him go. But Paul says nothing. Why? Why? Why does he embrace this beating that he could have avoided? Why doesn't he announce his Roman citizenship and avoid this this brutal pain and this moment in his life? Why, why Why does he welcome this? Let's keep going. Let's see if we can't figure it out. Um... Not only that, here's what else is fascinating. Paul uh, endures this beating, is put into prison. He knows God has led him here, right? Because he saw the vision. So he knows God has led him here. Um, how, how would you respond in that case? Like, Lord, I, I thought you wanted me to come to Macedonia. Like, remember you gave me that vision, Lord? Come over here and help us. You wouldn't let me go north. You wouldn't let me go to Mysia. You told me to come here. Lord, what, what in the world? This is not what I expected. Like, how would you respond if you had just been beaten with rods, put in jail after the Lord had called you to this place and you're there for the sake of ministry? Here's, here's how Paul responds, verse 25. About midnight, so Paul's in the inner prison, in stocks with a bloodied and bruised back. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and all the prisoners were listening to him. It's pretty easy in a comfortable room on padded chairs with nice lights and, you know, a nice even temperature to stand up and sing hymns to God, isn't it? It's pretty easy. But after you've been unjustly beaten, 
humiliated and disgraced in public, um, had your back beaten, and now you're in stocks, and it's the middle of the night in a cold, dank Roman prison in downtown Philippi, not so easy, right? But Paul's not dissuaded. He doesn't need his circumstances to be comfortable and pleasant for him to pray and to worship God. There he is, in prison, worshiping God. And all, notice, all the prisoners are hearing. He and Silas pray and sing and worship God. What does God do? What happens next? Well, what happens next is as they're praying in the middle of the night, God sends an earthquake, shakes the jailhouse. Um, and, and as the jailhouse shakes, Paul's stocks fall off, Silas's stocks fall off. In fact, all the prisoners' uh, chains fall off. The doors of the prison are flung open. Uh, the jailer, who, whose house is attached to the prison, he feels the earthquake. He wakes up. He sticks his head out his front door. And as he sticks out his front door, he sees, he sees the door of the prison wide open. And immediately realizes, oh, man, they're all gone. They've all gotten away. And so he grabs his sword, and he's about to kill himself because he's like, that's going to be the punishment I'm going to get from the authorities anyhow for letting my prisoners get away. So he's about to kill himself. And what does Paul do? Paul somehow, maybe through the moonlight or whatever, sees him about to do this and says, don't harm yourself. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. Paul's a prisoner. He's now apparently in charge. We're all here. Rest easy. The jailer calls for lights. They light some torches or lamps, and he rushes into the prison house. He falls down before Paul and Silas, and he says, Sirs, what do I have to do to be saved? Somehow, in hearing Paul preach through city, knowing what the demon girl was saying, they're telling the way of salvation, knowing who these men are, he now is like, I don't get you guys, and I don't understand it, but you guys seem to have a connection with God in some way, and I want to know what it means to be delivered and saved like you are. So Paul preaches the gospel to him that very night. The jailer takes Paul and Silas into his own home, washes their wounds, and Paul shares the gospel. Uh, the jailer believes, his whole family believes in Jesus right there in the middle of the night. They actually go outside of the city in the middle of the night and baptize the jailer and his family in that very same river where Lydia was baptized. They baptize him in the middle of the night, and they come back into town, and the jailer actually gives Paul and Silas some food, makes sure their wounds are all right from being beaten, um, and... And then the next morning, interestingly enough, here's what happens. Um, picking up in verse 36, it says this. Um, <clears throat> Paul and Silas are, are still at the jailer's house, are back in jail. The city magistrates um, basically send the police force to the jail and says, you can let those men go. One night in jail and a beating was probably enough. Let them go. And, and what does Paul do? Well, Let's read in verse 36. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, look, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out and go in peace. This is your opportunity. One night's not too bad. One beating's not too bad. Leave, right? Go. How would, how, how would you expect Paul to respond? We're out of here. We're free. Let's go on, right? This is what Paul says, verse 37. Paul said to them, um, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Romans, and they've thrown us into prison and now they want to let us go secretly? No. No, nope. I'm going to stay right here. No. 
Let them come themselves and take us out. Paul's asking for an escort out of jail. And notice what he says in the middle of that. Men who are Roman citizens. At this point, he announces his citizenship. If he had just done it the day before, he could have avoided all this pain, all this inconvenience, all this heartache. But he didn't then, but he does now. What's the difference? Why does he say, I'm a citizen, they shamed us humility, they treated us in a way that no Roman citizen should ever be treated. Um, No, they're going to come. You get the city leaders, you have them come to the jail, they're going to walk us and march us right through downtown Philippi out of the the jail. Why? Well, because remember, the charges pitted his Jewishness and Jesus' Jewishness against their Romanness, right? Um, if, if, if the city magistrates give Paul an escort out of jail, what happens? That's essentially them admitting that they made a, a mistake. They were wrong, which does what to the small, little, tiny, brand new church in this town that's not welcoming of new ideas and new religions and newfangled things connected with a Jewish Messiah like Jesus. What does it do for that little church? It all of a sudden gives it credibility and a leg to stand in. Well, I guess the city magistrates think it's okay what he was preaching. I guess it's okay for there to be these, these people that believe in this. Paul, Paul makes this decision at this moment to announce his citizenship and ask for an escort because it's best for the church. It's best for the gospel. Why does Paul not announce his citizenship earlier? Well, because if all of a sudden he says, hold on, I'm a citizen, in the midst of uh, charges that pit the Jewishness of Jesus and the Messiah against Romanness, what does that say about Jesus and things Jewish-like? Kind of, right? Demotes them. Says they're not good enough. Not only that, it says to the, the new Christians in that new little church in town that Paul has privileges and can avoid pain that they might not be able to avoid because they might not have citizenship papers. Paul doesn't want that. He doesn't want that. So he chooses to undergo a beating and an imprisonment that he could have avoided. Why? Because it's best for the gospel. It's best for the church. Just think about that. He could have avoided being beaten with lead rods. But in his his well-formed, gospel-centered heart, he chooses to endure suffering, pain, disgrace and humiliation because it's best for the new little tiny church in Philippi. I find that absolutely challenging and fascinating, don't you? That Paul is driven by this question, what's best for the gospel? What's best for the gospel? In fact, he's so formed by Jesus and the gospel, that even in a moment of crisis, he just reacts without having to spend you know, hours praying and thinking about what should I do here. He's so formed by it that even in this moment, he just reacts with, I think this is best for the gospel. This is what I'm doing. That is the driving motivation of his life. What's best for the gospel? Um, and I, I think in a world like ours, where 
where we're so driven by ease, comfort, success, being great, status, uh, you know, likes and uh, popularity, where we're so driven by all of that, Paul's example paints a, a stark, deep challenge to you and to me. What would it look like for you and I to live for what's best for the gospel? To make our choices on what's best for the gospel. Not just to be Jesus-centered, but to also be cross-centered. If you're going to embrace suffering like Paul does, that's being cross-centered. The gospel, the gospel proclaims the cross not just as the price for our forgiveness, but the pattern for our lives. What does it look like to lay down your life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel and the concrete details of everyday life? Paul, in fact, believed this so strongly and was so formed by this that when he writes to the Philippian church 10 years later, so 10 years after this event, Paul writes a letter, the letter of Philippians that we have in our New Testament. And remember, in that very letter, he said, the things you have seen and heard and learned from me, practice these things. Well, we just read some of the things they saw and heard from him, right? Like, this is what they saw. Well, when he writes this letter to them in Philippians chapter 1, he's giving a news report about how he's doing. And when he writes that letter of Philippians, Paul's back in jail, this time in Rome, under uh, Roman imprisonment. And he's going to give them, you know, he spent time with this church. He was close with these people. So he wants to give a little update on how he's doing. Uh, in that letter. When he gives an update on how he's doing, what does he say? Well, look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. He says this, now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being put in prison, that's what has happened to him. So what has happened to me? Here's Paul's update on his life. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to, what does he say? Advance the gospel. Advance the gospel. Paul's in prison in Rome. He's giving an update to his friends on his life. And he would say, everything's fine. They're feeding me well here. The food's not bad in this Roman prison, right? I'm pretty comfortable. You know, they got a nice flat screen TV for us prisoners to watch. Life is all right. I'm, you know, I'm trusting that the Lord's going to get me out of here any moment. Um, He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? That my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. And for Paul, that's what he cared about. What's best for the gospel? Well, if being in prison in Rome is best for the gospel, so be it. In fact, he goes on in verse 20 and 21 there, Philippians chapter 1. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all put to shame, but that with full courage, catch this, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. If I live, may Jesus and the gospel be honored. If I die, may Jesus uh, and the gospel be honored, whether by life or by death. Why? Because, as he says, for me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul had one motivating factor in his life. One driving force. It was Jesus and the gospel. 
And there may be other factors that's got, that has to shape our decision-making in our life. There may be other factors that shape, uh, you know, how we sort out some of the things. But at the heart, the most important factor that should shape every decision we make in life is what's best for the gospel. What would honor Jesus and the gospel in my life? in my body, in the things I do. When it comes to how I do my job and how I interact with my coworkers, what would honor Jesus and the gospel? When it comes to how I raise my kids and interact with my family, what would honor Jesus and the gospel? When it comes to which school should I go to and why should I go to that school, what would honor Jesus and the gospel? All right, that's what drove the apostle Paul. In fact, Paul says, it even shapes the way he looks at death. Like, even his his potential death in Roman imprisonment is shaped by, I just want to honor Jesus and the gospel. Does what's best for the gospel shape your life and my life to the same degree that it shapes Paul's life? Paul, Paul chooses to undergo a brutal beating, to be treated disgracefully. In fact, he writes to the Thessalonians, describing the event in Acts 16 as, I was humiliated and disgraced publicly in Philippi. He he chooses to embrace failure and embarrassment and humiliation because it's best for the gospel. So emotional pain, physical pain, what's best for the gospel? The circumstances of his life are, are Uh, looked at through the perspective of the gospel. So there he is in prison in the middle of the night singing and praising God. Why? Because he's just trusting God and what he really cares about is I want to make Jesus known and I want the gospel to look good. And so he's willing to make his choices in his life based on what's best for the gospel. I have a friend who a handful of years ago, she, um, she had, I think it was her second or third round of cancer. And the prognosis didn't look good. Um, and me and a couple other leaders from the church we were at were uh, called. She just wanted to pray for her. I was so incredibly moved by her response. Because as we gather around to pray, she's like, it doesn't matter to me whether I live or die. I figure I can't lose. This is a mom of three kids, couple grown, one planning her wedding. I can't lose because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This this motivating principle drives Paul's life so fully and should drive our life so fully that it should affect Big and small decisions alike. So there's Richard with the post hole digger. Um, Where is the property line? You tell me. Why did he do that? Because, in his words, my relationship with my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus is more important than where the property line is. What's best? for the gospel. What's best for the gospel? And my hope and my prayer for you individually, me individually, is that increasingly we would be so shaped by Jesus and the cross, the gospel, that it would filter into all the little and big decisions of our life. 
and my hope and my prayer for Calvary Boise, from Tucker and the eldership and the pastors, right down through every member of us, the congregation. My hope and my prayer is that as a body of disciples, we would be so shaped by Jesus and the cross that what would drive every decision would be, well, what's best for the gospel? What's best for the gospel? And we live in a culture that values successism and greatnessism to such a degree that we're rarely willing to embrace shame, suffering, and maybe even the appearance of failure for the sake of Jesus, but not Paul. Not Paul. He was willing to do whatever was best for the gospel. What about you? What about me? What about us? What about us?